Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sales Syndicate podcast, episode 48. I think arguably one of our biggest guests uh, to date. There's a, yeah, there's the smile. Um, but no, I, we're going to be talking about um, what we've called in a nice fluffy way uh, from dependency to ownership, the rise of a full cycle sales rep, which sounds like a James Cameron film out of Hollywood, doesn't it? But it's, it, it's essentially um, what we're going to be talking about is um, reps becoming more full cycle, more 360, more responsible for their own pipeline generation and what that sort of means and the, the, the effects of that um, and the change in market as well. But before we go into the juicy bits, I will hand it over to my guest, Jen, uh, to introduce herself and the company. So over to you, Jen. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for today. My name is Jen Allen Knuth. Um, I head up community growth over at Lavender. If you don't know Lavender, it is an AI email writing coach. So think as you're writing cold emails, it's spotting and fixing everything that might get in the way of a reply. Um, so I've been there since January, which means I've been there seven months now, which I think makes me tenured in a startup. And it's flown by, I'm sure. Yes, yes. This is actually, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it's my first new job since my, I mean, my only new job I've ever had. I worked at my last company for 18 years. So that's been a, a heck of a, of a journey too, but excited to be here. 18 years. You, you don't meet, you don't meet many people nowadays. Like I think the younger generation, <laughs> they seem to change jobs every, every six months, 12 months, don't they? So it's, tell us about the, the 18 years then give us a, a whistle stop tour of nearly 20 years. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of us in sales who never thought we'd end up in sales. That was certainly my story. Um, I started in 2004, ended up working for a phenomenal mentor and coach, which I attribute to the reason that I fell in love with sales. Um, and I started off in account management, moved into net new logo hunting, did cross sell upsell, then moved over when I got into the challenger business. If, if those of you know the challenger sale methodology, um, I sold that, which was kind of higher ticket, more disruptive, um, transformational deals. And then in my last Last year at Challenger, I created the role of Chief Evangelist, um, where I was responsible for creating demand, um, led our podcast, our webinar series, and still carried a bag actually in that year, um, full cycle. Um, so yeah, that's my background. And I think um, for those that haven't heard the job title, the term evangelist, I mean, I, I sort of recognize it probably... Arthur Castillo at Chili Piper's one I can think of um, with that um, job title. And he's coming on in a few weeks, actually. But what, what, does, what does that mean, like in layman's terms? Yeah. So if you think about sales and you think about marketing, one of the, the hardest things is the lack of integration there, right? So sales is out there trying to push a number. Oftentimes, marketing is trying to push an MQL number. And at times, those things can be at odds. And so what I realized is when I was an AE, I was starting to create a lot of content online and I was having much more of a problem discussion than a product discussion. And so inevitably I'd have very senior CROs who I didn't even think were on LinkedIn popping in my inbox saying, Hey, that problem you just wrote about like is word for word, what we just talked about in our team meeting. I'd like to talk to you more about what you're seeing companies do in response to it. And so it just triggered this reaction to me where I was like, gosh, there's so many executives that are out there looking to learn. They're not yet ready to buy. And marketing is really priming for people that are ready to buy. Sales is priming for people ready to buy. Like, how do we take 
kind of that initial baby step and baby step and shape their learning in our favor. And so the job became a lot of just creating content that was designed to be a bit magnetic in the sense of if you see the problem articulated in the same way that you're talking about internally, it's going to want to make you reach out instead of me having to reach out to you. And so it started happening enough when I was an AE doing it, where I realized like 70% of the leads were going to other people on my team. Why not just formalize the role and then become sort of a demand building engine for the business and ended up, I think, creating about 7 million in pipeline. We sold one of the biggest deals our company's ever sold in the shortest window of time we've ever sold just by starting the deal with a problem discussion as opposed to like trying to push a solution. Amazing. In essence, one hell of a 18 year CV that's like put you right at the forefront of your current role and I guess the topic we're going to talk about today but before we jump into the topic I did forget to ask you what did you think of the podcast morning routine video featuring my cat my cat pudding like just it made my purple little heart explode it was so good y'all were so creative I love to see it I don't think anyone has ever done a better job promoting a podcast than that video so mad mad well, i'm gonna clip i'm gonna clip that up and send it to my ceo and ask for a pay rise i think so yeah <laughs> um, but we've, we've got to tell you we've got some um spoke about um arthur coming on with chili piper we, we've got an idea or two to uh see what we can do off the back of that because it was really really it. fun and i think like you said it's um doing a podcast is one thing but like almost pro or promoting your own podcast as if you would promote a tv series or something it's like it's yeah it's a it's a different take um and i think we're uh, we're enjoying it so i'm glad it went down well and i got i managed to finally get um mike to say he'll come on the podcast as well yes um, he's an amazing guest you guys will have a blast yeah he he did say my original email went into his um other inbox but i think that's uh, just um what he meant by that is he del- he deleted it but i'll ask him that. <laughs> i'll ask him that on the episode um yeah. but no g- good that you enjoyed it um and for those who are listening or watching if you haven't seen it already go and have a look on youtube or my linkedin and let us know what you think of the video um I must say the lavender didn't really taste great in a smoothie. I've got to say that was one of the only bit I didn't enjoy filming. Um, and I, I did have one of my colleagues at the end of my bed filming me. And that was kind of a weird sensation. Um, but there you go. Um, that's actually, yeah, let's, let's get into the topic that people are hopefully here to, to listen to, which is the, like we said, the from dependency to ownership, i.e., from being dependent on other people in the business, other areas of the business, other channels, um, to owning your pipeline. Um, and what we're sort of calling that is like a full cycle sales rep. So in terms of the shift then, in the, the significant shift that we're seeing in the last, I guess, COVID onwards mainly, but even more so in the last year, what what shift is is happening um just to give a bit of context before we go into the the how um and sort of why yeah so i think if you look at kind of the good era post covid where it was like everybody was forced to make these transformational shifts and adapt to a remote workforce and it meant that people had to go out and rapidly buy technology and so in that kind of environment 
an SDR model was, I would argue, completely necessary, right? Because when you've got demand flooding your gates and you are an AE trying to manage through the, like the, the buying cycle, you need that prop up front to be able to help you kind of filter through all that and make sure anytime you're on the phone, it's with someone who's a high quality buyer. So like that made a ton of sense. I think what's happened since then is we've made a really sharp pivot. And a lot of people who entered the sales profession um, during that kind of good heyday have never been or sold in an environment like this, where it's, I would argue, it's almost like the exact opposite. People are trying to find ways to reduce their tech stack. They're trying to find ways to do more with less. They're trying to find, can we do a homegrown approach instead of buying something you know, from another solutions provider? And so we made that pivot like what feels like overnight. And so I think what what we're starting to see and certainly have seen over the past 12 months is really overbloated sales teams that were necessary only a year ago have become totally redundant. And I think it's really, really sad, right? It's it, a lot of people lose their jobs. A lot of people are like, what the heck happened? This was, everything was going great. And then all of a sudden it's not, but this is an unfortunate circumstance when working in sales. When you have a high demand environment, it's just going to be a, a massively different situation than when you have a low demand environment. So I think we're sort of leveling out now, but I think that's what we're seeing is organizations are really looking hard at if we don't have demand coming, you know, through the floodgates, do we need to have SDRs? And I, I hate to say that, but is that even a necessary model or do we need to think differently about the way that we capture and build demand? So I think that's kind of where we are today. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's never nice to see um, layoffs where it, in yeah. such large quantity, but I think, on the whole, the, the 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 good thing is, I think, even on my LinkedIn feed, the majority of people that were affected by the layoffs seem to have got a better position that they are now happier in, which is, you know, it's the silver lining, albeit yeah. they probably didn't want to have to find a new job. They seem, <laughs> they seem to be happy yeah. and the market seems to be sort of settling, which, which is good. But in, it's interesting because I think there are still companies aren't there that are like almost doubling down on the no 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 you don't you don't need to do this demand gen and you don't you know you don't need full cycle sales reps we're going to stick to the old model uh even though it's only like two or three years old as you said but what are like some of the key drawbacks of of companies relying on marketing for inbounds or sdrs for leads then rather than empowering um reps to generate them themselves. I've always said opening a deal is infinitely harder than closing a deal, right? To take someone from unaware, I don't need you, I'm living my life without you, to saying, even considering, hey, maybe I will look at this is so much harder than when you've got someone who wants to buy and you have to work through the motions. I'm not minimizing how hard closing is, but in my opinion, opening has always been the harder skill set. And so when you look at the model we've put in place for so many years, it's like, let's put your least tenured, least supported, least resourced, least like trained people on the hardest job. It makes absolutely no sense in my opinion. And so I think for me personally, when I was a sales rep, I did have years where I had an SDR and I would find myself saying, I'm spending so much time because the organization is not developing these people, trying to get build up business acumen, trying to help them understand what triggers to look for, trying to do all these things, 
only then to put it in the hands of someone who may or may not get it, right? So I think a big part of the problem is if you have an organization who has invested in the development, building the business acumen, helping understand like the persona that you're selling to, the SDR model makes a ton of sense. If you do not have that, you are essentially putting your least experienced people in the driver's seat and you're sitting on the bus being like, where are we going? When are we getting there? And so in my opinion, the years when I have not had an SDR have always been the years I have outperformed because instead of taking that time trying to develop someone else, I'm taking that time and I'm doing the work. And I think there is something to be said for having an initial outreach from an AE where they are leading with their business acumen. They're leading with their experience and working with other people. And so I'm not a proponent of saying, let's get rid of SDRs. I want to make that so, so clear. But I am a proponent of saying, let's reconsider what we are asking SDRs to do. And I don't think it should be take the hardest part of the sales process and then get fired if you can't handle it. Yeah, and there, there was a, I, I think it was a few months ago, I, I saw a lot of stuff on LinkedIn where um, people who were getting cold calls or, or outreach or they had submitted a, a, a request were almost insulted to be contacted or an initially hit that um, almost gatekeeper-esque rep, very junior rep, because they were like, yeah, I want to speak to sales. You know, why are, why are you forcing me to speak with someone to for a discovery call when I've come in and said, I want to speak to you about your, your solutions? So I think there's a definite mindset shift, isn't there, in terms of what people want from a, a buying journey and, and, and a sales journey? Yeah. I mean, if you think about like, we can't keep building sales organizations and building sales strategies around how people used to buy 10 years ago. Like 10 years ago, that model would have been fine. But now I as an individual, and I experience this, when I'm looking at solutions for my problems, I'm going out there just like every other buyer in the world. I'm doing a ton of homework. I'm evaluating things. I'm looking at G2. I'm talking to other people. What do you know about this? I'm going in communities, asking questions there. And so when I finally decide to contact a sales organization, I'm not like, hey, gee whiz, what's going Like, what do you guys do? And so I think we have to recognize that as our buyers become more self-informed, they are just going to have a different requirement out of what they expect from a seller. It's not just a product feature benefit show up and throw up anymore. It's like, hey, I'm coming with really hard questions. I could not get answers to anywhere else. And so if I am met with someone who's like, hmm, I don't know, I have to get back to you. All that does is create friction and effort on the buyer. And we know both of those things are deal killers. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that about the, you know, coming to the table, even more informed in terms of their level of education is as high as it's ever been. So that means the requirement of this sales rep of today is their knowledge has got to be at least that, if not, you know, 20, 30, 40% greater in terms of the knowledge so deep product knowledge, you know, knowing how the product can be used in every way or every sort of which way. Um, and it's, it's interesting because we had um, Rory on from Trumpet, who obviously is a big uh, advocate of um, buyer enablement and how reps are almost becoming project managers. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but we, we seem to be hearing this a lot where reps are almost becoming project managers in that they are helping the buyer through the journey rather than forcing the buyer to tick boxes that they've got. It's almost like, how do you want to buy? We're here to help you do that rather than the other way around. 
Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's even a step more than product expertise, right? Like product expertise, in my opinion, it's like bare minimum, right? You, you got to know your product, but in many cases, your seller can learn or your customer can learn almost as much about the product based on your website, talking to other people. In my opinion, it's, it's emerging a new set of skills. Like I now have to become more than a product expert. I have to become an expert in the problem. And what I mean by that is if a customer, so for, I'll take Lavender, for example, right? If a customer comes to me and says, hey, we're not booking enough meetings. If I can't sit there and have an intelligent conversation about more than just Lavender and say, all right, like Lavender is one option, but have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? Help them explore kind of status quo, homegrown opportunities. I am only going to be at the mercy of how great our product is. Right. And so I think it, it creates this new skill requirement where I have to be able to talk about not just my product, but the alternatives to my product, because that's how you gain trusted advisor status is being someone that is obviously going to still bring a bias. Like I obviously want every customer to use lavender, but I've got to be able to say like, based on this, this, and this that you've said, this probably makes the most sense to start with. And then we do lavender over here. And I think that is a skill that sellers have have rarely been trained on, but that's how you get someone who trusts you and relies on you and comes back to you again and again and again, versus the, the person that's just like, I can tell you everything there is to know about our product, right? That's great if I know for sure I want your product, but very few cases are as, as simple and cut and dry as that. And you, and you mentioned um, skill set then. So it, it, in terms of your your opinion on the ideal set of skills for a sales rep of, of today, what, what does that look like? Mm. I think the biggest thing and the biggest glaring gap is business acumen. Like I, I know I'm going to be a bit of a like dead horse beater here, but like knowing your product, so what? Your, your customer probably knows your product. You have to understand how do companies make money? How do companies sell? What are the risks and pros and cons of different choices that they make like that to me is all in the camp of customer acumen, business acumen. And it is rarely, rarely trained in salespeople. And that is shocking and horrifying to me. Like if we look at where buyers are today, that in my opinion is the number one skill we've got to build. Beyond that, I think the ability to have an effective conversation, I hate like using the word discovery because people I think think of like death by a thousand questions. And that's not what discovery to me is, but the ability to show up and help a customer learn about themselves, that to me is great discovery, not helping a customer learn about us. And so I think being able to bring that, pair that with insight about the business problems your customers face, like none of these skills are classic sales skills that are in the, in the sense of like classically trained. We see a lot of like, Let's focus on negotiation. Let's focus on sales process. Let's focus on like, I don't know, whatever other multi-threading. And yes, these things are important, but I think very long-winded way of saying it is the early upfront conversation that matters most. Most deals that die are not because you're a terrible negotiator. Most deals that die are because you're a terrible opener. I see. So the the business acumen there, it's interesting because what 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 is your what is your take on the that project management so that like conversation that we because we've we've had like three or four people on the podcast and i've seen it a lot on linkedin about the necessary requirement for sales reps to be able to manage a deal cycle as if it's a project with a gantt chart and everything for efficiencies and whatever 
Yeah, I think like I, I'm I definitely support what it stands for. But the thing I worry about a little bit is like it kind of puts the seller in the backseat. Like I think if, if I think about any good seller I've ever bought from, the thing that makes them great is their ability to be prescriptive, right? So the the term maybe is like is is messing me up a little bit. Like I do like the idea of we should be in support of the buying motion, but I think being in support of something indicates like you let the buyer tell you where they need to go. And I would argue that most buyers have no idea what that map looks like. And so I think we just have to be careful that we are balancing our expertise in knowing what is likely to happen when you buy a solution like this. What are you likely to encounter in terms of skepticism, objections, who typically gets involved? with that that idea of being in support of a buyer's motion instead of being like beholden to our sales process. So it's a, it's a very fine balance between handholding which is uh what you say you don't you know you want to avoid that you don't want to label sales reps as handholding and at the other end the consultative approach it's like a sliding scale and you want to be more towards the consultative approach of actually being an, like you said a, an expert in in the providing that that um that sales journey so in um in terms of like taking ownership of that pipeline then so we, we've sort of spoken about some of the key skills and opening being one of the most uh sort of or opening opportunities creating opportunities being one of the most difficult sort of parts um over and above closing for example so what are some of the like key steps for sales reps that have to think about fueling their own pipeline rather than relying on others? Yeah, great question. So I think step one is being crystal clear on the set of problems that your solution solves for. And that sounds so stupid and obvious, but I find that it's actually way more rare. Like being able to articulate in your buyer's voice, how would that problem play out? And not like, we're not seeing 100% ROI. That has nothing to do with the business problem. That is a, a solutions implementation issue. Like being able to say, can I mirror how this executive would talk about the problem in a team meeting? Is my language similar to them? Am I using the same set of KPIs and metrics as they would? Do I know the emotional impact of these things as opposed to just the rational? So I think step one is getting crystal clear on how would a buyer talk about the problem that they face? Step two is thinking about what are all the status quo alternatives, aka doing nothing or doing something homegrown that do not involve buying our product. Like we have to become an expert in the alternative to us. So again, if I look at Lavender, it's an email coaching tool. Nobody needs Lavender in this world. The world would be just fine if Lavender didn't exist, right? I, I, I like it much better with Lavender in it, but... The problem is like if I'm an SDR manager, that means if I don't have Lavender, I'm sitting down, I'm reviewing emails, I'm writing out feedback, I'm hoping that it sticks. And that's, an, that's a time consuming task. But I, as a salesperson, I have to know that that's an alternative because in order to defeat that alternative or prevent that alternative, I have to sell in a way where I am exploring what are the downsides of that status quo, even if that customer hasn't told me it. So I think that is what I'm like, that's a very specific example. Like it should be my job to say, hey, love that you're interested in Lavender. We're going to get there. But out of curiosity, what else have you done to try to solve this problem? If a customer has done nothing, that is a huge red flag to me because at some point their boss is going to ask them, 
what else have you tried before running to buying something? And so I, as a salesperson, I have to be on the forefront of that. I have to talk about, have you done internal review sessions? Have you tried having peer reviews? Like, what have you seen with that? Here's been our experience if you're interested in it, right? Still, I'm still selling, but I have to guide that buyer through that motion. So that's step two. Um, and then step three is really understanding where the heck are your customers going to learn? Because I would argue so much of where we are missing out as salespeople is we are just not showing up there. We're making cold calls, we're sending cold emails, but we have an opportunity to shape everything we say and do by being a reflection of what people are doing in communities, what people are doing at events, what people are talking about in peer-to-peer conversations, in podcasts and interviews like this, right? So there is a gold mine of information. And I think that third and final step is being able to understand do I know where my customers are showing up looking to learn? And am I absorbing that learning and then playing that back um, in my outreach to them? And are there any sort of tactics or strategies for, aside from the obvious research, um, that you found work well for identifying the, the best channels so to, I think to, the- you know, to target prospects? Yeah, I think there's a really easy one that we just overlook all the time, which is just talk to your customers hey, when was it that you realized you had a problem worth solving? What, where and who did you talk to when you were learning about this, right? And what happens is you're going to get a lot of different answers, but you start to build a spider web and then you can start to look at patterns. So one example, right? Like we partner with an organization called SDR Leaders. It's a fabulous organization. It's run by Sam Nelson. And he's done a really good job of bringing together a community of people who are often first-time managers who are often one of few, if not the only one inside of their business. And so they have very few people inside of their companies that can help them with their job. So what do they do? They look outward, right? So I think being able to have conversations with your customers, that's how we learned about it. They were like, you know, I go to these meetings and they started talking about lavender. It's like, hold on a second. What is this meeting you're talking? What is this group you're talking about? If, I, if I'm not asking my customers, it's a guessing game. So I think the easiest, most outright one is, Ask your customers, what was the thing that made you realize you had a problem worth solving and who and where did you go to, to talk to about that before you made the call out to us? And and then, like you said, in terms of, I guess from a, if we take sales as an example, it is a very good example, but if you're working in sales, then all you need to be doing is scrolling down your LinkedIn feed to see what is resonating well. You know, let's take Lavender as an example, all of your content. So chances are you're going to be able to find a great community or great set of prospects that you can speak with or learn from within the wider lavender community because you're seeing it on your feed and corporate bro is another one and sdrs of london AEs of london all these great communities that you'll see as you just scroll down and it's more prevalent nowadays i think where you have to look elsewhere for help because like you said you're either remote working or teams are smaller Rev Genius as a community pavilion, whatever it is, where you can just hold your hand up and actually ask. Um, and that seems to be getting more normal, I'd say. Yeah. And I, I mean, I try to stay away from selling to salespeople because I do think we like in my examples, because I do think we have it so easy that all of us live on LinkedIn, right? We're either prospecting, we're looking for jobs, like we live there, but I'll give a totally different example. I was selling to a company that um, sells garage doors right? So not at all SaaS related. Um, and one of the things that they were struggling with is they released a new suite of like highly technical pro- products. 
But if you think about where people buy garage doors, it's like Bob's garage door down the block. And this guy's probably like 80 years old. He's got very little technical acumen. He's not going to push this product. So like the company realized we have to figure out where are people gathering that are our target persona. Well, their target persona were people like homeowner associations because they have lots of garage doors, right? And it's like one fell swoop. And what they realized was those people often have Facebook communities where their, you know, condo owners can gather and talk about things and talk about security related issues and things like that. And so for them, they realized like, I would never look at Facebook and be like, yeah, let's show up there. For them, it made a ton of sense because that's where their, their prospects, their ideal prospects were gathering. So my point is like, if we're in sales, we've got it kind of easy because we know where salespeople gather. But even if you're in like a heavy manufacturing industry, your customers are still learning. It's just about figuring out where they are. Yeah. And I, I think um, when, whenever I think about, I don't know, myself changing role in marketing and understanding where my customers are at, I, I always do think uh, if I went to work in uh, cybersecurity, they're probably not hanging around on LinkedIn because, you know, they're not necessarily huge advocates of social media and things like that. So, exactly. yeah, it's always uh, one of those interesting ones, isn't it? So obviously, if you're... Um, full cycle and you're sort of self-reliant in terms of generating your own pipeline. I guess you want to make sure there's no holes in your bucket before you're putting leads in. So are there any like very common mistakes that you see salespeople making when trying to self-source leads and yes. how can they avoid making them? I will speak to my own experience because I never want to come on and act like I'm the world's bestseller. I made every every mistake in the book. And this is one I see very, very frequently, which is being enamored by like a demographic stat about your your customer. So that could be like for us, it could be like, wow, this this organization has a thousand sales reps. That's gonna be my big priority right? Or this organization has this many FTEs if you're selling something else where that matters, right? So I think demographics are great for eliminating bad fits. They're not sufficient for finding good fits. And so where I go instead is to say, instead of just focusing on the world's biggest sales organizations, which by the way, everybody else is focused on, um, think about, again, the problem that you solve and who can you find that has evidence that that problem may be occurring? So I call it more like problem-focused prioritization, where I'll give you a great example. Like in, when I was selling Challenger in the middle of the pandemic, Zoom was on paper one of the best potential prospects ever. Massive sales organization, massive revenue size, like all the great things in a demographic sense. But Zoom had no issue with demand and Challenger was largely about how do you create demand. And so I could have spent all day long prospecting Zoom, writing all sorts of messages, but my messages would never really land because they don't have, they didn't have the problem that we faced. We could make some stretch argument like, oh, well, you'll see it in two years, but people weren't worried about two years from now in the thick of COVID. They were worried about like five minutes from now. So I think be very mindful of what are the triggers or evidence points that would suggest someone might have the problem you face and find those things. So for us at Lavender, it might be, hey, they laid off 20% of their SDR team. Like that might suggest they weren't seeing productivity from their SDR team. Now the SDRs that le are left are carrying a much larger load. They're going to have much higher targets. That's a problem that Lavender can help with, right? 
But just looking at an organization saying you've got a thousand sales reps, it's just an insufficient, I think, measure to finding good people to spend your time when you're um, full cycle. I think that's a great, I mean, we're, we're massive advocates of, of triggers here at Selligence. I mean, that's, that's literally what we're all about. Yeah. So we, we can, uh, yeah, I can definitely understand that one in terms then of not what quality over quantity is, is, is what we're saying. There's no, if you're filling your own pipeline, there's no point in you filling your own pipeline with stuff that's going to take you, um, way longer. You're not going to have as much success with, cause it's just going to be a vicious circle taking you down in terms of performance and stress and all these sorts of things. So quality over quantity is basically what we're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we neglect that the one finite resource we have is our time. Like every time I'm on the phone with a, a prospect that does not have a problem, that is a horrible, horrible thing that is often my own fault. And so sometimes it happens where it's like, hey, all the signs pointed to it was going to be great. It doesn't happen. That's fine. But we've got to do that due diligence up front because every single minute we spend on someone that's a bad fit, it's just time we don't get back. Uh, obviously, uh, I'm speaking with uh, yourself and Lavender here, which are great examples of like personal branding, creating demand, all that, all that, all that jazz. Um, but I guess for... The, sales reps that were reliant on SDRs or reliant on inbounds, they probably didn't think too much about investing into their own personal brand. So how important is that element in terms of being a self-sufficient uh, rep? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Like it was the single biggest thing I ever did as a salesperson that improved my performance. Right. So I'm obviously very biased that it helps the thing I worry about, and and I never thought about this way. I was interviewing Amy Volas um, last year on the podcast, and she was like, I hate the term personal branding because the implications of it are like, I'm branding myself. And when you're a salesperson, you're working for an organization. It's less about branding yourself. It's more about branding the organization. Um, there are different use cases for personal branding for sure. But in this context of this conversation, I think of it as less about personal branding and more about being a living, breathing symbol of your customer's problems and just doing that in a way that you can, like you get so much more scale than any amount of cold calls or cold emails you can send. So I think about it in, in like I, I mentioned this word before, but being a magnet, right? I want people to come to me because of my content, hitting them in the face with, wow, this is like a mirror. I, where I, I see some people go down a, a wrong path is trying to present themselves as an expert when they're not, um, trying to product pitch in learning forums. That's kind of icky. So I think it's it's like if you are going to invest in it, you really do have to develop that customer acumen and say, I'm just going to use it to attract customers to the problem as opposed to attract customers to me being an expert. I think that just opens up a lot of... Um, skepticism a lot of like weird tonality things like that yeah almost um it kind of feels it, it feels like it's getting more tacky uh as, as time yeah. goes on in terms of like <laughs> the the you know top 100 chat gpt prompts and like people positioning themselves as experts on that and it's just yeah it's just getting a little bit um tacky and I, look, you, you guys um at lavender are probably numero uno top dogs whatever you want to call it in terms of creating content that i helps a, well helps 
people relate to a problem or identify a problem or at least feel like they're not alone with a, a problem in their, in their day to day. So like, what are some of the um, best ways in which you can do that? I don't know, formats or um, f- f- just from your perspective, like what's worked really well? Yeah. So a couple of things. So one is, and I mentioned this word so much, I'm realizing this conversation, but because it's that important is the tonality of it. Like one of the mistakes I see people making a lot, in my opinion, is they're like, you're doing this wrong. We as humans typically don't respond to a complete stranger showing up and being like, you're a moron. And But yet I see a lot of content that's like making your buyer your enemy. Um, I think whatever channel you do it in, make the buyer's problem the enemy don't make the buyer your enemy. So an example of that is like when I write about cold emails, I am very careful not to paint the SDR as the problem. What I paint as the problem is the lack of visibility into what works or doesn't with cold emails. It's essentially a guessing game, right? Because I am not going to win any friends or favors by being like, you SDR send bad emails and you're the problem. Then I just create like this wall of defense. So I think that's really important to remember regardless of channel. But some of the channels that have worked really well for us, um, I'll shout out Chelsea Castle and our team. She writes all of our written content, so our blogs and um, things like that. She has done a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of doing what every marketing organization should do, which is free teaching on the problem, right? If we think about when someone helps us in a time of need, it creates this feeling of reciprocity, which is like, I want to help you back. So Chelsea, for example, wrote this phenomenal article about using unsure tones in emails. It is totally counter to how most of us grew up learning how to write great emails. And within it, she's giving, here's the reason why an informative tone actually hurts your cold email reply. Here's all the data. Here's examples of emails with unsure tones. Here's things, words to use, all that. We're essentially just giving everybody what they need to write an unsure tonality email. You could argue... Well, doesn't that eliminate the need to use lavender? In our opinion, it doesn't, right? What that does is when you help someone and you give them as much as they possibly need to be able to do the job, that makes them say, my gosh, if this is what I can get from you for free, like what is that experience of working with your organization like? And I think Chelsea just does the most amazing job bringing that to life in all forms of written content. So that's one And then the second one I'll call out is Lavenderland. So we launched it a couple of weeks ago. It's essentially like a Netflix-esque type experience where we recognize that our target audience is largely people that are Gen Z, millennials. Like they're not sitting down reading a hundred page white papers. They don't like that. They They want something that's entertaining forward, but yet still educational. And so we created this land of content where it's meant to be really fun and enjoyable. We're still balancing and teaching in that experience. So that is an example of like, you know, it's our owned media content. Not every company can do it, but we've seen that be such a powerful channel that we recognize the more we teach and entertain in the same combo, the more we draw people in. So just two examples of things that are working well for us right now. No, I think the the lavender land stuff. I saw it um, when you guys released it. Yeah, I mean, a, a unreal job on like the execution of it. And it's, it's 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 as a marketer, I'm I'm very very jealous and very you know I would aspire <laughs> I would aspire to get to that that level. But um, yeah, we we we've got you know we've got the podcast, but that is pretty much the only uh, 
content of that nature we're producing. Maybe one day we'll, we'll, we'll aim towards that. But I think some some great tips there in terms of you know giving away stuff for free can often feel like selling yourself short or you know how like you said how are we ever going to make sales if they can get it for free but it's human nature if you get something that's really useful you want more of it and then more of it and more of it it's like an addiction right if something helps you write a really good email then you want to write 10 good emails um and on the topic of writing 10 good emails it would be wrong of me to have you on the podcast and not ask (laughs) ask the question of like can you share some practical tips um on crafting emails for self-generating leads self you know self-fueling your own pipeline yeah and this is a great time to do it because i mean i know you saw this but last week last monday i put up an offer and just said hey if you've got a cold email and you want me to score it in lavender and give you some feedback i will and then my dms just exploded so i'm fresh off of looking at now what is probably 150 cold i was gonna ask how many did you get yeah (laughs) I stopped counting because, you know, LinkedIn DMs are a mess. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know how many, but I would. I would you need a holiday now, don't you? <laughs> I yeah. do. I do. But it's really fascinating because this is something most SDRs don't get to see. Most SDRs don't get to see 100 cold emails. They just get to see their companies and their cadences and like their own. And I think so much learning happens when you look at cold emails on mass. So a few of the biggest things that I saw and observed, the number one far and away is length. And I cannot say this enough. When I first heard Lavender, before I worked here, saying, you need to write 50 word cold emails. I was like, yeah, but our our industry is more complex and that won't work for us. The reality is most of us can't write 50 word emails because we are just unclear in what we want the email to do. So we do what I call the kitchen sink problem. We throw in everything. We're like, here's ROI. Here's what we do. Here's why we were founded. Here's customers we work with. And the motion is like, does any of this impress you? Does any of this want to make you work with me? And it results in an email that people rarely even read. Because if I get an email from a complete stranger and it's this, I mean, I'm on a podcast, but if it's like a mile long, there's no way I'm going to exert effort into doing it. And so length is by far the biggest error that I saw. We have to be so clear in our purpose, our intent, and our thinking to get to a 50-word email. And that's why it works because it is really hard to write a bad 50-word email. So that's number one is anchor around 50 words. That is what our research shows far and away outperforms anything else. Second thing is, again, the word I keep using, tonality. One of the other mistakes that we make, and I made this all the time as a salespeople person, is you show up and you tell someone their baby's ugly. People don't typically respond well to that. We call that an informative or an assumptive tone where we, we, we act like we are in someone's house. We've been there before when we actually haven't. So what plays much better, you actually get a 26% lift on your reply rate, is when you use an unsure tonality. And what that sounds like is, notice this, thought this might be a problem right? It's not being completely 100% certain. Even if you have reason to believe that you are, it just, it reads better because if you don't work within the four walls of an organization, the reality is we don't know everything about that problem. So that's why unsure tonality lands well. Number oh, three, that one relates, that, that one really hits home for me because that's, that's my biggest bugbear working in marketing in terms of the cold emails yeah. I get where they, they make an assumption that I need their help because I, I must be struggling with this. And I'm like, delete straight away, <laughs> delete. 
And it's probably it's probably worse on LinkedIn at the minute for me, but maybe it's just because I work in marketing and maybe, yeah, it's I, I don't know. It, yeah, it's almost offensive, isn't it? You you immediately it, like get you're not a damsel in distress. You're fine. Yeah, like, like you're, you're getting the, high without it. What do they call it? Like the the rough of your neck, like you know, when a dog gets the rough of the like that's how it makes you feel. And it's yeah, it's interesting actually because um, our head of sales sits next to me and. We were using lavender, funnily enough, the other day um, to try out the um, the tool and the the fifty fifty word limit really uh, really hit us. But it was good because when we got that ninety four or ninety six, you actually looked at what you put in at the start and then what you got out of it, and you were like, "Yeah, you know what? Like, why why would I have read that?" And then <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. But anyway, I, I, I interrupted you there. I interrupted no, you. you're fine. I think that's great. Like the other thing on Tonality, I saw a lot of cybersecurity emails, like people from cybersecurity solutions. And it was like, it was always that tonality of like, you're, you're missing out on like all of this cyber risk. And it's like every, every CISO knows that cybersecurity is important. Like it's not our job as salespeople to educate them. So I think it's just, it's such a common pattern. So I'm glad you brought up that example. Um, the third one I was going to mention is subject lines. This is one that there's always, you know, a ton of different opinions on. Again, Lavender's looking at data from 100 million emails to see what actually helps or hurts replies. None of this is our opinion. Um, what we found is one to three words, no punctuation, no emojis, no numbers, no ROI, none of that. You actually want your subject line to be really boring. And the reason for that is if you look at your personal inbox, what you're going to see is like, you know, first name, Jen, you know, 10 times your leads, whatever. Like it's very obvious now what a sales or marketing email looks like. So the move is actually to look as little like that as possible. And so we call it internal camouflage because if you think about the emails you get from your boss or your peer, I use this example all the time, but like if my boss wanted me to update my pipeline in my CRM system, they wouldn't write an email that was like, Jen, 10 times your likelihood to hit forecast this quarter. They would just say, update your CRM. And so the more we can look like that, the more, again, it gives us credibility because we don't look and sound like every other sales and marketing organization out there, first name this, and then super salesy subject line. Um, so that's three. And then the fourth one that I'll end with is reading grade level. This is one I'm still like a work in progress on. When I first started using Lavender, my reading grade level of my emails was like 11th and 12th grade. And the reason for that is I was trying to impress my reader with all my fancy big words and all my buzzwords. And all that does is just create more complexity and effort for your reader. So one example that we give all the time is like, if you are using visibility in an email, use C instead. So as you're going through your email, look for three, four syllable words and eliminate them. I just did this with someone in ed tech yesterday who's like, I cannot get my reading grade level down to what should be fifth, third to fifth grade is ideal. Um, and she's like, I can't get it down. And I went through her email and it was like implementation, visibility, uh, prioritization. You kill those words and you swap them with simpler ones. And all of a sudden you can drop that reading grade level right down. Yeah, it's interesting. It's 
I'm glad you talked about the three and four syllable syllable words because we really struggled to get the reading level grade down when we were doing it the other day. And, you know, we're not saying spend this amount of time, but we we were doing it more of a test, but we were in there like 45 minutes trying to get the highest score we possibly could. And <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was one of the ones we were really struggling with. And I, I work in marketing. I, I, I write copy, I write blogs, I write website stuff. So it, I found it even more difficult to like, pull myself out of the way that my English mother teacher yes. as she's an English she, she's an she's an English teacher so I had this constant nagging like hey darling you can't say that god that's awful English and I like there's that constant like nagging thought of like having to write proper sentences and use proper gr grammar and uh, you know as big a words as you can think of but yeah it's, it's it's so true it's hard like i was on with a head of sales yesterday who was looking at lavender for his team and he was like it's almost like you're suggesting we use fragment sentences i was like it's not almost most we are mm. because pull up your outbox and read to me the last three emails that you send he was like i write in fragment sentences when i'm writing internally i was like right and you probably don't even realize you do it so when you see these like really verbose long-winded things it alienates you because it, it doesn't line up with the emails that you're used to seeing so it triggers your mental spam filter so it is like a process of unlearning i love the way you talk about it we've got to actually unlearn really good behaviors we learned in school and this is just a byproduct of the fact that i would say almost zero sellers go through any sort of like written communication for business training when they start an organization. So I feel you, I hear you. I've been th going through the same thing. That's a really interesting tip is take a look at the last three, five emails that you sent a colleague or maybe your partner, like a WhatsApp that you sent your partner. Do you write in full eloquent sentences or do you get straight to the point and write not in like, you know, you're not going to use lol, well, you might do, but like, <laughs> you're not going to use TBC instead of, you know, whatever. But yeah, you don't write in the same language as, you know, an author would in a book, do you? You just don't. No. So I was, why, I, would and, you, and you're, why would you expect someone to read it? And you, you raise a good point in marketing. Like we often talk about the use case for sales, but in marketing, I was reading someone's newsletter the other day and he was like, this is a newsletter for revenue professionals and the leaders that lead them. And I was like, you can make that sentence so much easier. This is for sellers and their leaders. Like we get, we just get enamored with our words, which is a beautiful thing when you're standing on a stage or you're, you know, leading a group meeting that fine, do that. But in written communication, we just have to recognize our readers like are looking for quick, efficient, punchy. It's interesting because I've got to re-message and redesign our website. So I'm going to, I'm going to remember that because I've got a lot of copywriting to come and I think that's going to help me one, write a lot less, which is great, but two, get straight to the point, which I think is going to be good. Um, Love it. Before we, we, we're coming up to our uh, allotted time, whatever you want to call it. So just quickly, how do you see the role of a sales rep changing uh, more over the next like 12 to 18 months then? Yeah. I mean, th this is a term, <clears throat> excuse me, that was thrown around a lot a long time ago, but I think finally has meaning. But the whole term of trusted advisor I think is making a huge comeback because I don't personally, I don't know that a lot of sellers put themselves in a position to be a trusted advisor. They put themselves in a position to be a product expert maybe, but like a trusted advisor is someone who is at a level higher than a product expert, someone I can go to and 
rely that they're going to give me answers that are best for my business, not theirs. And I think that has always been something that great salespeople do. It's not a new thing. Like very few things in sales are new. It's not a new thing, but I think that's where you're starting to see the divide of people who are true sales professionals versus people that are just selling stuff. Um, and so I think always to the extent that you can try to understand, again, deeply understand the problem that your customer is facing, deeply understand the alternatives to your solution, and then think about pros and cons of different things they might provide and be that Sherpa to your customer to say, look, if I'm in your shoes, this is what I'm weighing. I'm weighing this versus this, this versus this, and then this is where I'm trying to get to. And I think the more we can do that versus simply like push products, the better our sales profession will be. You know, and I think there's been a lot of positive change over the last um, three to five years of moving away from that sleazy car salesman on the forecourt to, like you said, that trusted advisor. And I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to change. And maybe we were having a conversation the other day, you might even start to see the misconception that people fall into sales because they didn't know what they wanted to do to people actually leaving university going, no, I want to work in sales. And actually, could there be degrees that, help you in the sales career or could there be qualifications that put you in a better stead for a long-term career in sales i love that actually one of the things i do here at lavender is work with universities and their sales programs and we give them lavender for free to start teaching early that act of clear writing clear thinking and being a witness to what these what these students are learning about sales before they ever step foot in a sales job is the most inspiring thing ever because I'm with you. Like I am proud to be in sales. I think sales is a highly, highly difficult profession that requires so much IQ, EQ, all of it. But it has had this ugly like watch salesman kind of reputation. And I just, I think what universities are doing today to arm people to walk into a sales organization, already know what a CRM is, already know what a cadence is, already know what a cold email cold call sounds like. Like that's so badass and I'm excited about the future for it. Yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be an interesting to sort of sit back and watch from a from an outsider's perspective, um, for sure. Last question I've got for you then um, is podcast and nominate. Who do I need to get on the podcast next and why? Okay, I was originally going to say Mike Wander. That's the only rule. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, I probably can't pick someone. I was going to say Mike Wander, but you've already got that in the works. I am going... To you know what? I just want to make sure I get his last name right. I'm gonna give you someone who I have been watching their content and really liking what they've been putting out. His name is Troy Munson. He's an enterprise AE. Uh, I spoke to him uh, two weeks ago, and his episode is going live in the next few weeks. Okay, I got another one. Julia Carter. Has she been on? (laughs) Julia Carter from Marpai. Yes. She's already in the diary. Come on. You've got all the good people. <laughs> right. Hold on. Third time. This is this is a compliment to my pipeline generation here, but it third is. time lucky, come on. It is. Um let me see. Shoot, hold on. I'm like, who have I liked stuff from? Oh, I'm we're under assume... pressure. We're under pressure. Wait, I'm gonna assume. Have you had Nate Nasrallah on already? Mm. 
No, there you go. That, that's that's the one we'll take. Wait. You have not had Nate Nasrallah on this podcast? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Third time was a charm. He is probably my favorite sales voice out there. He's so, so forward thinking. He's the nicest dude ever. All in on Nate Nasrallah. Done. That's great because um, I think we're, um, I seem to be getting a lot of good names from these questions and that, that one's not come up. And I think the first two that you said, they were really exciting kickoffs and episodes that we've got coming down the line. Yeah. So for those that are listening, I hope you've enjoyed this episode um, and obviously keep an eye out for the clips and the YouTube videos and things like that. Um, but also the two that we've just mentioned there. So Troy and Julia, which will be coming up very, very soon. But um, Jen, thank you for coming on. Hopefully it wasn't uh, too bad and um, we will catch you <laughs> in the next episode. I loved our time together. Thank you so much for having me.